Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman, and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Ruth Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org slash sustain. We really appreciate your contribution. We appreciate your prayers. And we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. And he says, uh, and, I, and I, ta- I, t- I spoke to her and I said, you know, why do you do that? And she asked me, like, how do I make up my prayers? And I said, oh, you know, were you traveling or not? She goes, no, I work. And I go, oh, how often do you do this? She's like, every day. And she's like, I just go home and make up all my prayers. And I said, why is that? And she goes, well, I can't take breaks. And I said, what do you do? And I'm assuming like ER, EMT. And she's like, I'm a pharmacist. And I don't know about y'all. No offense, pharmacists. I love y'all. When I show up to Walgreens, they're like, how can I help you? Right? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I'll take like the aspirin. They're like, hold on. And then they're talking to the techs. And they're just like cash, like super cash. And I'm like, what is stopping you from taking four minutes out to pray? But apparently it's just like policy. Like they just can't do it. So... This is, and, and then the conversation that we ended up having, and alhamdulillah, you know, this person ended up doing this. I said, look, if, it's re- if, if prayer really means something to you, if salah really means something to you, then maybe not tomorrow. Maybe you don't, don't just drop it right then and dip because that also might put you in undue distress. But I said, you have to start planning your exit. Like you have to at least start strategizing. How can I get to a place where I can practice my faith practically, Right. Again, because what matters to you is what you will sacrifice for. It's just a common principle of life. Alfred Adler, famous psychologist, like one of the form of that of psychology, basically, right? Alfred Adler said people will do what they want. Very simple rule. People will do what they want. Obviously, there's exceptions, but the general rule is that if you really want to accomplish something, then generally with your will, with your himma, with your desire, you're going to find a path to get there or you'll, car- you'll carve one. So Ibrahim is basically saying, I'm going to put my family in a place where there's no vegetation so that they can establish prayer. Why? Because that was the building of the house. That was the building of the, of the Kaaba, right? So this is revolutionary. The person trusts in Allah more than they trust in themselves. And then we talked a little bit about the story of the sacrifice of his son, where he was commanded by Allah to sacrifice his son, the son that he prayed for, the son that he wanted. God tested him by saying, you have to slaughter your son, right? And we talked about some of the lessons from that. What are some of the lessons from that that you learned from that story? Prays for a son, has a son, has a great son, not just like any son. The Quran actually says, Halim, like he's a really amazing kid. No tantrums, no attitude, just a great kid. And then Allah says, What? And, uh, Ibrahim says, That God told me that I have to slaughter you. Right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine like that feeling? And we talked about this. What did we learn? What did we take away from that story? Spoiler alert, he didn't slaughter him. All right? Huh? Having trust. Why, Marcus? Why was trust important there? Yeah. Yes. I'm resisting. You said God's plan. I'm resisting something a lot right now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, trusting Allah's plan. I'm going to say Allah's plan. There's less of an urge to say something when you say Allah's plan. Okay? And, and, and what, what's at the end of that trust? Peace, yeah, absolutely. 
What's at the end of that trust for Ibrahim? So Ibrahim has, is commanded to slaughter his son, doesn't know exactly why, right? There's no like clear, logical reason, right? A lot of people are like, faith, religion has to be logical. Well, I mean, like God's telling Ibrahim to kill his own son. It's not very logical, right? But there's a, there's a test of submission, a test of will, a test of, of dedication, of sincerity. So he does it, he goes, and he actually executes not actually his son but he does the plan god prevents it from ever from from taking his son's life right there's no cut there's no uh blood nothing and instead god sends down an animal to slaughter as a response or as a as a as a reward and god sent down something much greater obviously than taking the life of his son now one of the things that's powerful about this story is that god gives us an analogy or a story of a father who has to sacrifice something that he loves which is like one of the highest levels of sacrifice so then naturally the question then begs to be asked like are any of us being asked to sacrifice any of our family members i'm saying are you being asked i'm not saying do you want to right I see a lot of older siblings like nodding. No, right? Are any of us being asked to sacrifice any? No. Like none of us are being asked. Like no one's like, hey, do you, do you really want to work here? It's like, yes, I'd love the opportunity to work here. It's like, go and kill your brother. It's like, what? No one would do such a thing. Or like, you know, go and do this. You're going, not. But they're asking, you know, Allah is asking us to do much less than that. Allah is asking us to wake up in the morning before the sun has risen and pray to rakat. Right? And, and, and to, to some of us, and myself included, we act like that's a really big ask. We're like, I don't know a lie. I really need my eight hours, right? Or fast Ramadan. Like, I don't know a lot. Like, I really need those. I really need my 2,500 calories a day or 1,000 calories a day or whatever you're on, right? Keto people, I need my stick of butter every day, right? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Like, how am I supposed to drink coffee if I can't butter in it, right? I don't know what, you know. But... It, we, we act as though like the asks that religion makes of us are like sometimes so heavy and so absurdly heavy that it's like how could how can we even you know complete this but in reality when you look at the Quran you find that the asks that were being made there were much much heavier much much heavier right and so that's the that's the lessons that we took from last week now today we're going to tell two more we're going to make two more advancements in the story we're going to talk about uh the Prophet Sallallahu birth. Okay, we're going to talk about the Prophet Sallallahu birth. Um, but first, before we talk about his birth, Musa, come here, come here, come here. Before we talk about his birth, we have to talk about, obviously, the, what led to his birth, which was the, the prayer of Ibrahim Aisadam. So when Ibrahim Aisadam, when he built the Kaaba, what do you want to say? You get one chance. <laughs> Okay, so when he built, that's the worst thing ever. You get one chance and you just mess it up in front of everybody, right? <laughs> when he built the Kaaba, Ibrahim Aisalam made a prayer. And I want everyone to write this verse down or keep this verse with you. Musa, Musa, please no. Go with Safi. Go with Safi. You see Safi in the back? Safi has candy. <laughs> I have no idea if he does or doesn't. Safi, you better have candy. All right, okay. He says, this verse is in Surah Baqarah, chapter 2, uh, 129. 129. He prays to Allah and he says, O oh, our Lord, send amongst these people. He's talking about the people who are now around, uh, um, around the Kaaba, right? Because after he had come back and after his, the, the sacrifice of his son or that event, there had now established a community there. And so he says, send to these people a messenger from amongst themselves who will recite to them the book, who will teach them, the, or who will recite to them your verses, teach them the book and wisdom, and will also purify them. 
Okay, so this is a summary of the role of a messenger. I'll give you it in a second, but I want to focus on one thing. Ibrahim is praying that this job that he has done, building this house, building this Kaaba, is not just for his life. He wants to actually maintain this legacy. Everything he's doing is not about himself. And actually, if you, if you look at the dates, right, some historians have done some of the, the math, the distance in time between Ibrahim and the Prophet Muhammad who he says in a hadith, I am the answer to that prayer of Ibrahim. The distance in time is roughly 2,000 years, actually over 2,000 years. So there's a couple lessons that we're going to take from this. Number one is that when you see yourself as being part of a legacy, as being part of something greater than yourself, your prayers don't stop at yourself. How many of you pray for things other than yourself? What do you guys pray for other than yourself? Can you share? Parents, okay, that's good. That's actually good because you're still seeing yourself as part of a legacy, right? When I'm praying for my parents and my grandparents, I always pray for my teta, my mom's mom. May Allah have mercy on her. I always pray for her. Why? Oh, can you turn off the keyboard because he's a, yeah. Why? Why do I pray for her? Number one, because I was her favorite grandchild, right? May Allah have mercy on her. I was, and she was shameless about it. She would just announce it. She would just say, he's my favorite. Like for Eid, for the Muslim holiday, everyone else would get a certain amount of money and I would get more. Right? Like, she was just shameless. Like, she was just like, so she used to call me her prince, right? Alhamdulillah. May Allah have mercy on her. Um, and so you pray for people. And, and again, when you realize you're part of a legacy, you're going to pray for people that are like, have come before you. But really, really incredibly sincere people don't just pray for those before them, but they also pray for what? Those after. And people. Why is it so incredible that a person can do that? Because it's very hard to pray for things that you can't see. It's hard to believe in things you can't see. It's hard to believe in things before they are there. Like Imam, Sh- uh, Imam Malik one time, or Imam Shafi one time, someone asked him about, like, how do I become a good father? Because he had a son. And he said to him, Where, did you have a kid yet? He goes, yeah. He goes, you're way too late. Meaning that the preparation for, like, the preparation for Musa for me should have begun, like, 10 years before I had him. My, my training to be a father, my training to be a husband happens before I get married. My training to be anything happens before. Just like you're trained to become a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer or a journalist or a teacher. It doesn't happen when you get hired. It happens in the decade leading up to that, right? And so in my training as a person like of, of sincerity, I have to think about people way beyond me. I have to pray for generations to come. And subhanAllah, why do you find this to be an incredible test of sincerity because when they arrive, that's when you start to pray for them and you pray for them as if you made up lost time. Like the way that I make dua for Musa, I should have been making dua for him years before he came. Oh Allah, when you give me children, if you give me children, make them righteous, make them good, make them, make them forbearing, make them loving, make them people that are, you know, have pure hearts. Now I'm praying for those things for my son because I can see him. But again, I feel like I'm making up for lost time. But had I been so sincere and had my heart been so like, observant that I was able to understand that there is a future beyond me, that when I open my hands to Allah, I can include other th- others than myself, then I would have already gotten this massive head start on this spiritual checklist that now I feel like I'm running behind on. So Ibrahim is making dua for his progeny. His, his society, and in reality, in all of humanity. He's including all of them in his prayer when he says, oh, God, send them a messenger. Okay? So that's number one. See yourself as part of a legacy. The second thing is, how many of y'all have ever made dua and you were kind of frustrated and didn't get answered quick enough? Right? It's like, 
the 10 people in the room who are honest, and then there's the rest of us who are not, right? Yeah, it's very natural. In fact, the Prophet said in the hadith that every single dua will be answered except for the one that the person says, where is my dua's answer? That's why I didn't get answered, right? He said that because you can't rush the one you're seeking from. You can't hasten that one. And Ibn Atta'illah says that when you pray to Allah, understand that you're submitting yourself to his timeline. You can't tell Allah, like, Allah, I want this at this time. He's not a waiter, right? He's not a, he's not a host. He's not someone that you're just, no, Allah Ta'ala is going to give you. God Almighty is going to give you, give it to you based on his wisdom, not just his generosity. He will give to you based on his knowledge, not just his compassion. It's like if Musa asks me for dessert, I always tell him what comes first. Dinner. I understand you want ice cream, and I will give you that ice cream, but first you have to have your vegetables. But if I gave him that ice cream immediately when he demanded it, I would actually be sabotaging him as a person. He wouldn't be getting what he needed to grow. He wouldn't be getting what he needed to be healthy. But I would be fulfilling his request. So we are like children in our spirituality. We seek from Allah things that in, in reality, if you look back at some of your du'as, you're like, that was kind of childish, right? Oh, Allah, the Lambo. Oh, Allah, this. Oh, Allah, that, right? It's kind of childish, right? Again, very nefsical. Like it's, it's like a, it's a nefs thing. It's like an, it's an id thing. Like I just want it, you know? And subhanAllah, there are times when much later you will look back and you'll say, man, if God gave that to me, I would have been dead. Like I would have been doomed. If God gave that to me, like I'm getting speeding tickets in the Corolla. Like imagine <laughs> if God granted me the Lambo, you know? I've actually, Mehreen and I have, have we, we've downgraded, like we've downgraded in speed. Like we got an SUV now. So like I'm like, people are passing me up, right? The Dallas people are passing me up with no signals because they're Dallas drivers, right? And, and that's something, subhanAllah, that when God withholds from you, sometimes he's withholding for your own good. Ibn Atta'illah says sometimes God gives you and by giving you, he's actually taking from you. And he says, sometimes God takes from you, and by taking from you, he's actually giving you. So you have to be, again, that sincere heart will be able to understand what's happening. You ask, but then you find such contentment in knowing that, you know what, I asked the one who's not only generous, but the one who loves me as well, and the one who's going to give me exactly what I need when I need it, and how much of it that I need. This is from Allah. This is Allah's promise. So Ibrahim asks, and 2,000 years later, the Prophet Muhammad comes. This is a sign in patience. It's a test in patience. When you ask, understand, have conviction that the answer will come, but have conviction that it will come when it needs to. And you keep working on your end, and God will keep doing his thing, right? Okay, so now it, the Prophet Sallallahu 2,000 years later, is born. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in between, but again, this is supposed to be a discussion on the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam with that focus. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is born in what is known as the year of the elephant. So it's the common era. It's like 570 uh, common era, right? The years that we're used to. Now, very interesting thing about the Prophet ﷺ. Does anyone know or have any idea? What do you guys think? What kind of a family did he come from? Did he come from a family of high class or did he come from a family of low class? Actually, very high class. The Prophet ﷺ came from one of the highest classes of family in Arabia, if not the highest, right? If not the highest at the time, Banu Hashim. So he came from like the pinnacle of family status, now, what kinds of things typically come with that kind of association? When you come from like high family status, what type of things come from it? Money, right? So wealth is one of them. But actually, not always necessarily because sometimes like clout is its own sort of capital and it doesn't necessarily translate to like currency, right? Sometimes it's like, it's not liquid, right? It's like, it's all just sort of like weirdly, you know, invested in a person's fame. What else comes with that? Honor, respect. Raise your hands a little bit so I can, huh? 
Power. Okay, very good. So these are all things that came with being part of the tribe that the Prophet was a part of. But something happened to him that was very, very interesting. That challenged all of this. And it happened before he was even born. When his mother was two months expectant of him, the Prophet Prophet Muhammad, his father passed away. His father actually passed away, by the way, in very near to what would end up being his home in a city named Yathrib, which later became known as Medina. So his father passes away, his father Abdullah passes away, and instantly, because of his father passing away, his entire social status, before he's even taken his first breath in this world, shifts completely. Because according to Arab custom, if a person's father passes away, they officially are registered or as considered as an orphan. And what that did to him as a person, before again he was even born, was it put into question all of the perks of the family status that he was being born into. All those perks. How do you guys feel about that? How do you feel about that moment? What would we say? That his father passing away, was it in his control or out of his control? Out of his control. How would you feel knowing that this was the reality? And are there things like this today in today's society? Are there things that are outside of your control that affect your social status? Tell me. What? Raise your hand so I can pick on you so you can elaborate. What are some things? Huh? The imaginary lines you were born between? What do you mean by that? You're born in Texas? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yes, I'm born in Texas. I'm a U.S. citizen versus like, or like, what's that city on the edge? Brownsville? Is that the one where like literally you can walk across to Mexico? Like literally, right? So like a person who's born in Brownsville, Texas is a U.S. citizen and a person who's born like a mile away is not, right? And this can drastically, like not can, it does drastically impact the trajectory of so many things and access to so many things that they have. Right? How incredible. I mean, think about even like when you talk about, uh, you know, the, the, occupied, the occupied land of Palestine and, and Israel, right? Or you talk about India and Pakistan, or you talk about, and people who stare at one another as if they're so different. When in reality, I think India and Pakistan still have like this theatrical thing that happens every day. Do you guys know about this? It's like the craziest thing ever. I mean, really, like the land of Bollywood, would you expect anything less? Like, there's basically a fake march off between the two countries at the border. We're like six people from each army and they wear like rooster hats. Like they do a lot of like this very big, like, you know, sort of like, I don't know what to call it. Like it's very theatrical. It's very dramatic. Right. And there's almost like acting on both sides and there's cheering. Right. So it's almost like Bollywood in a cricket match in one thing. And, and subhanAllah, it's actually very sad because there are families that quite literally transcend those borders. B- uh, Pakistan and Bangladesh. There are families that transcend those borders. I mean like the same name the same blood, the same identity in so many ways, but because, again, as Amin put it so beautifully, the imaginary line, the imaginary line that somebody drew, right, whether it was like a colonizer or whether it was the tribes that were at power when, this, when the nation state was developed, because of that imaginary line, there's so much of a difference. And it impacts this person's, like I said, their trajectory for the rest of their life. Okay, what else exists in this form? Yeah. Your parents... Yeah, your parents' wealth. How much wealth did your parents have when you were born into that family? What kind of situation were you born into financially or emotionally, right? How, what was the status of your home? You had nothing to do with your parents being 
like getting married or falling in love or having you, you had nothing to do with that. But now you have to sort of put on with it, right? You got to just got to live with it. And for some people, that's fine because the situation is compatible with what they want and who they are. But for some people, it's not. For some people, it's a very toxic situation. For some people, it's a very difficult one. For a lot of people in this room, even, it's a very difficult situation, right? Something that you're not chosen, you're not, you haven't chosen. What else? Yeah. Yeah, what abilities God has given you, what abilities God hasn't given you, what abilities God gave you, and what capacity, right? What kind of, these are all things that we don't choose. Now, what's interesting is, would you say, you tell me, would you say that society places us at different levels based on so many of these factors? How does society do that? How are we put on different levels? How are some people raised and some lowered societally, socially, right, by some of these things? Give real life examples. Okay, very good. Access to education. What do you mean by that? It feeds itself, right? And there's like the marginal that kind of like either slip either way, but generally speaking, it's it's systematic, right? And it's actually, you can even argue it's like created to be that way. In fact, it's not even argue, it's pretty clear that it's created to be that way, right? Okay, what else? Education is one. What else? The justice system or the injustice system. Okay, what about it? Yeah, it's all linked. And then things like, you know, privatized prisons, right? All these things that kind of feed into one another. Okay, what else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's probably, to me personally, it's probably the most heartbreaking thing about all kinds of oppression that we see, but particularly the oppression that we're feeling so close to the border is that the children, I mean, the stories, I don't even want to talk about it, honestly, because it's going to like shatter me right now, but the stories of children, toddlers, my son's age, who are dying, who are unable to eat or have diapers or hygiene, basic human rights are being withheld from them. And they're children. Like, look at this child. What does he know? I was having a conversation. I was walking in Turkey in Istanbul, and I was having a conversation with one of my friends who was there with me. We're walking at night, and we saw this young uh, kid about his age, about Musa's age, about two, holding an infant the age of my daughter. Okay? My daughter, mashallah, is four months. Uh, Mashallah, triple thick milkshake thighs, right? Uh, She's a Murphy. It's confirmed. Uh, She's big. Four months, four months, and I saw a, a, a kid the age of my Musa holding another baby the age of my Iman, and they were Syrian refugees, and the kid was begging for money. The kid was asking for money, okay? And so we did, you know, whatever. We grabbed whatever cash we had. We gave it to them. We kept walking, and it was just completely silent. And this might be really, like, like meta-philosophical for everybody, but I had this thought that just tr- it really bothered me. I couldn't sleep, and I said, like, that infant has no awareness even of the world that she is existing in like she's unaware at that age all they're seeking is comfort and nourishment both like emotionally physically right she has no idea that she's been categorized and classed in the society is this way she has no clue 
She has no clue that she's a refugee from Syria whose parents are homeless. She has no idea. She's a three-month-old. The point I'm trying to make is that the Prophet ﷺ went through this for a reason. He went through this for a reason. Why, why weren't prophets just given like silver spoons and golden platters and like raised up to the level of the powerful where they could dictate all these things? Why were they put through trial and difficulty? They were put through these things to show us that societal lines and judgments are illusions. Absolutely illusions. Meaning that these things change so quickly. These things shift so rapidly. Even between political uh, you know, climates, even between you know, whatever, people might view you as differently based on something that shifts from every two years to four years. Like job markets switch very quickly. Any of you, you were interested in becoming a certain something when you were in college and the job market shifted, so you had to shift? What was that? Okay. Not a lot of overlap, right, Anna? Okay. Cosmetology, right? There may have been a time when cosmetologists were like in. They were like, we're either hiring an ER doctor or a cosmetologist, right? Those are our two options for the budget, right? But then like things shift, right? The, the economy dictates, right? There's, there's way too many cosmetologists coming out of school, right? This happened to my cousin in law school. He was telling me, I heard him talking to another person. I'm sorry if you're in law school or if you're a lawyer, I don't mean this against you. My cousin was telling me this, right? And he's actually my cousin, not the Arab cousin where everyone's your cousin, uh, right? It's like the frequent flyer discount. So he, he told me, he was talking to somebody else who was going into law school, and he told him, he's like, you, want to, you really want to go to school for three years so that you can you know, uh, work another job outside of law? Like you can do this or that? Like that's what you want to do? He's like, there's so many lawyers. He was talking about his specific kind of field and his area. But that's just one, that's how economy, the, the economy will make you feel worthless because you spent three years of your life studying and, 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 and cramming and passing exams barely and passing state bars and, fed, and, and, and national association you know, exams. And then you're not going to get a job. And instantly, like your self-worth dips. And you're like, oh, do, am I even worth anything? And you know what's crazy, subhanAllah, is that God's standard for what your value never changes. Society's standard for your value will shift all the time. You will be on top of the world one day because of what society sees you as, and the next day you won't be. Everybody loved hummus like five years ago. Now you say you're Arab and they don't want to sit next to you on a plane, right? Unless they're vegan. Then they're like, I still love hummus, Right. It's, it's so interesting. Like every, it, it, the, the, the irony sometimes behind the immigration debate is so, and I'm not, I'm not getting political here, but the irony behind it is so interesting that there are people who are so dead against certain people because of where they come from, yet they want all the benefits of the culture that that person represents and identifies as and belongs to, right? I want their food, but I don't want them. I want their music, but I don't want them. I want their fashion, but I don't want them. Society is so fickle. God is not. Allah just wants you to have God consciousness. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, what country you came from. It doesn't matter where you do for a living. Allah doesn't care about any of that. The Prophet said, God doesn't even look at your image. Rather, he only looks at your heart. So anytime you feel that it's not fair, that you are being made to feel like less, because of what society is telling you about who you are, remember that the Prophet ﷺ was told the same thing before he was even born. He went from being the top of his society to instantly plummeting to the status of an orphan. And what happens next is heartbreaking.
But we'll talk about that when we get there. And subhanAllah, in that moment, we learn that only care about what God thinks about you. Everyone else will shift. You have to roll with the tide, right? You have to go up and down as the wind blows. That's fine. You got to climb that ladder sometimes in corporate America. You have to do what you have to do. You have to smile and nod sometimes. You have to go here, do that. That's fine. But don't let that become who you are. Who you are is what God wants you to be, not what your company wants you to be. Because you know what? When budget is low, when, when, when profits are low, and they don't have the budget for your department anymore, you're just a number, right? You're just a number. And so you don't want to base your self-worth off of whether or not you're going to be working here or not. Your self-worth is whether or not, whether or not you prayed Fajr that morning. Your self-worth is how much you pray to Allah, how connected you feel to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything else is decoration. So the Prophet ﷺ went through this. And Amina, his mother, despite the fact that she was being tested with the loss of her husband, despite the fact that this was a difficult test, that her husband passes away, she describes something very interesting. Anyone here ever had a kid before? Okay. Let's talk. <laughs> so I haven't had a kid, but I have been a part of that journey, right, now twice. And am I accurate in saying that it's not easy the pregnancy like people say they have easy pregnancies but it's almost like saying like carrying that boulder was really simpler than i thought it was going to be right but everyone else is looking at the person they're like how did you do that okay so being pregnant is difficult okay delivering the child any update on how easy or difficult that is that's hard okay everybody having a kid is hard okay (laughs) delivering a child out of your body is difficult okay painful yes or no Amina is going through all of this without the support of having her husband with her. And now, because society views her as being a widow, she also is kind of like scant on that as well, the societal support system. In fact, when you're expecting or when you're delivering, what makes it even a little bit easier, if you can use that word, is the family and people around you. It's the people that are around you that help you through those moments. And she now has lost that. She's lost her husband, and by virtue of losing her husband, she's lost that status in society. But subhanAllah, she describes the pregnancy of the Prophet as something very interesting. She says that it was actually filled with moments of ease. So she said, for example, like, I didn't feel any difficulty during the pregnancy. And then she said, when I delivered him, I didn't feel any pain. I felt nothing at all. And so you're talking about one of the hardest moments of her life being losing her husband and having a child and you're seeing her now telling us as people who are curious about what that experience was like saying that it was so incredibly easy have any of you ever gone through something that on paper was extremely difficult but there were moments in that time when you said this isn't as bad as i thought it was going to be or in fact you found ease in it can you share you're like actually when i had a child no anybody good example yeah yeah do you guys remember Hakim Olajuwon this is why it's for young professionals because everyone's nodding right if it was a little bit younger than this you're like who's that right Hakim Olajuwon Hakim Olajuwon same story right what Zach was saying playing while fasting on paper I mean, there's even coaches who I've heard don't let it happen. Like, they will bench their starting quarterback if the person decides, to, you know, Muslim, to, decides to fast. They'll, they'll just say you're not playing because we're not going to risk, you know, 
the 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 performance issues. But Hakeem said the same thing when he was fasting during the playoffs, during the daytime. You know, there's playoff games at like 3 p.m. and he was like double doubling like everybody, right? He was just destroying any competition. Why? Because Jabril was with him, right? No, I'm joking. <laughs> the Angels of Real was throwing Mali Oops. No. Because, again, we're, we're, we are a community that believes that there's more than meets the eye. That's what blessing is, baraka is. That there's more than meets the eye. You look on paper and it looks incredibly difficult, but then the experience tells you something. Ramadan, for all of us who fast, is that kind of thing, right? When you fast in Ramadan, on paper, it looks miserable, but there's something special about it, right? Anybody else gone through a really difficult time, but you had those moments of recognition of ease during the difficulty? Anybody? Yeah, a deal. Mm. Mm. Subhanallah. So Hadil, may Allah have mercy on your father, and acceptance as a martyr. Hadil lost her father a couple years back in an accident, in a boating accident. And she was saying that the difficulty of, of losing, right, a father, again, you and the Prophet Sallallahu are going to have something to talk about in paradise. Um, that difficulty was obviously immense, but then the religion gives us some sort of consolation in certain ways where he, he is categorized as a martyr because certain people, when they pass away, they are given the status of martyrs. One of those people are people who drown. They pass away due to drowning in, in water. And subhanAllah, the reward of a, of a martyr when they lose their life in that way is that they are with Allah in their abode in the in per, in, in basically the, the path to paradise before their body even hits the ground, the hadith says. Another person who, by the way, uh, gets the status of a martyr is a woman who dies during childbirth, a woman who passes away during childbirth, right? These are certain like narrations that we have in our religion that give us consolation for people who are people who die from a disease, from a, from a, from a disease that gets them like, uh, from the community, like a, almost like a plague, right? So these are certain moments where, again, you find this 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 very interesting ease. Do you guys ever have you guys ever heard the verse in the Quran in the Ma'al Usr Yusra, quoted by people who are dealing with breakups everywhere? Okay, okay. The verse tra- <laughs> the verse translates to verily with inna ma'a al usri yusran. Inna means absolutely. Ma'a means with, al-usr means difficulty, yusr means ease. Very interesting. My teacher told me something beautiful about this verse. Everyone say usr. Everyone say yusr. He said, subhanAllah, God tells us that every difficulty, number one, it's coupled with ease. Oftentimes people translate it as after difficulty comes ease. No, it's with. Meaning that if a person has the fortitude, and the strength to be able to force themselves into perspective, that they will find that whatever they are going through that is testing them is also somehow giving them relief. Somehow. In that moment of test. It could be something like, a, like an illness or a diagnosis or a financial crisis in, at home or something. And as a result of that test, as a result of that difficulty, there is some other benefit that is coming from that. My father lost his job when I was in high school. And really, I mean, it was, it was one of the, the, the big layoffs from Motorola. 
and never really recovered in terms of uh, career, had contracting positions here and there. But the, the, st- the standard of living that we were used to and the standard of, of work that we were accustomed to, and this is the story of a lot of Americans, right, during the, uh, the you know, early uh, 21st century. And subhanAllah, like, as a result of that, we actually ha- had uh, to move. We had to get rid of our old house, which we had just finished constructing um, a-, a suite for my grandmother, right, who passed away. And we, it was a big house. And one thing that my mother always used to complain about was what? When you have a big house and you have kids, what happens? Huh? Cleaning. Someone said cleaning, right? I see where you are right now. That's one, okay, definitely, I guess, okay? But what's the other thing that parents complain about when there's a, there's a lot of bedrooms and not a lot of common... I never see you, right? See, Amin knows, right? I never see you. You kids never talk to each other. You're just looking at your phone. Back in the day, it was computers. And it wasn't even laptops. It was like tower computers with like box monitors. My mom used to call it the box. Everyone's addicted to the box, right? And subhanAllah, dude, I'll tell you, my mom used to always use this this word addicted. She's like, you're addicted to it. And actually now we're seeing that she might have been right. Uh, and it doesn't help that subhanAllah, we were subscribed to a magazine, like a, like a computer magazine called Mac Addict. Like one day it came in and she was like, you're addicted. And I'm like, no, we're not. She's like, look what you're reading. And I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, got, got when Allah gets you. Right. And like, so we had to move to a smaller house, a much, actually an apartment. We had to move to an apartment and we became a lot more like tight knitted as a family as a result of that. We spend a lot more time together. Again, no one's, no one's erasing the fact that my father was unemployed and lost his job. That's not what people are saying. When you're going through difficulty and the Quran says, God isn't saying, come on, it's okay. You'll be f-. No, what he's saying is, yes, your difficulty is real. Yes, it is valid. Yes, it exists. Yes, it is testing you. But in the process of understanding that test, can you not see that there are things that are there for you as well? Not just against you, but for you. Can you not recognize that? So Allah is asking us. So my teacher said something beautiful about this. Remember Asr and Yusr? He said the difference between Asr and Yusr in the Arabic language is how many letters? One. He said Asr is Ain, Sin Ra. Yusr is Ya. Right? And what happens? It's just one switch. Begins with an Ain, begins with a Ya. One switch and your entire perspective on that moment changes. Went from difficulty to ease. And this is why you'll meet people in your life who are going through things that you, you're like, I will never be able to go through what you're going through. And they're handling it like a champ. They're handling it with such grace, like such beauty. Like they're just going through that and you're just like, subhanAllah. You know, you're, 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 you're may Allah ta'ala have mercy on our friend Surpi, his father passed away yesterday. And I was, I was talking, I was messaging him back and forth. I was on a plane coming back and he was saying, you know, subhanAllah, like giving me sort of like, he was almost consoling me, like through the text, I was like, I'm so sorry to hear about that. I'm really, you know, I was, I was kind of shook from this moment. And he was saying, no, like Allah Ta'ala took him in a beautiful way. And there's so many people giving us so much support. Again, look at that grace and that beauty that he's handling this difficult time with. Make dua for his father. May Allah Ta'ala have mercy on him. Right? These are the moments that you will recognize. Now, again, you'll only recognize that ease if you're willing to see it. And Amina, in the middle of this tragedy, losing her husband, single mother, lost her clout, social status gone, no longer, now she's a widow, no longer the wife of Ben Hashim, now she's a widow, her son's an orphan. What happens? She says, that, that pregnancy was easy, that birth was easy. And then she started noticing these miracles that were happening in her life after, or throughout that moment, throughout the time when she was the mother of the Prophet, Sallallahu 
that like they would randomly find fruit in their home. They would randomly have food available to them. The cow that looked like it couldn't produce any milk was producing like gallons upon gallons, right? And the great grandsister cow of Brahms, right? Like they were like producing so much milk that it was like she was like it was it was, it was too much. Like we had so much abundance. Why? Why was Amina able to do this? Because she was able to see these things. But there are moments in our lives when Allah is giving us these miracles and we're not, we're not willing to see them. We're all just too focused on the difficulty. Just too focused on it. And Allah is granting us that yusr amongst the usr, but we're not going to see it. We're stopped at usr. We don't finish the ayah. Inna ma'al usr, yusr. This, we, don't, we, we just stop. Usr, that's it. It's just difficulty. No, look, this is happening. No, I don't want to talk about it. It's just difficulty. Force yourself to get to the ease. Force yourself to find the relief. We're going to conclude there, inshallah. We had one more story that I really wanted to tell, but it's going to take a little bit of time. So I'm going to save it for next week, inshallah, when we have more time. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us the strength to deal with difficulties. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us people who place Him as a priority. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to place in our hearts love and reverence and respect for our relationship with God. We ask God Almighty to grant us the ability to practice what we've said and heard. We ask God Almighty to forgive us of all of our shortcomings and to grant us the humility to always want to be near God and always have that nearness be reflected in our character, that we are good people, that we're good to people, we're good to those people who we know and those who we don't know. We ask you, all Allah, to be generous with us. We ask you, all Allah, to forgive us of our sins. We ask you, all Allah, to help us through any difficulty that we are going through in life. Oh Allah, we ask you to help us in our day-to-day, in our jobs, as we are drudging through this life, O oh Allah, we ask you to give us strength. We ask you to give us felicity and compassion and generosity and not allow this world to make us jaded and to make us negative and to make us cynical. But, O oh Allah, allow this faith to grant us positivity and to grant us appreciation of the small things and to grant us the ability to see the relief in every difficulty that we go through in life. Amin, ya Rabbil Alameen. Subhanakallahu bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfirkum wa tubu